Hello, welcome to the FPS podcast series. This is podcast number 26. And today we're going to be talking about new developments in contract terminations. My name is Todd Hatherley, and I'm the Director of Programming for Federal Publication Seminars, and we're a leader in federal government contract training and professional development for the past 60 years. Every year, we train thousands of businesses, federal agencies, and individuals on the legal and regulatory compliance and accounting nuances found in the federal regulations through nationwide classroom, online, and in-house sessions. These podcasts are a small sampling of important content you as a contracting professional can expect from attending an FBS program. Whether in person or online, live or on demand, you cannot find another source with breadth and depth of experience, knowledge, and content anywhere. So please visit us at fedpubseminars.com for more information. Joining me today is Greg Bingham and John Chesbro from HKA. Welcome, gentlemen, and tell the audience a little bit about HKA and about yourself. Hey, this is Greg Bingham. So HKA Global Inc. is a large consulting advisory firm. So we have over more than 1,000 professionals and 50 offices across 19 countries worldwide. And so both John and I are in the government contracts practice group located in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, John, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm John Chesbro. I'm in the government contracts industry for 35 years now, primarily with large aerospace contractors and a number of senior government contracts and compliance roles. And of course, most recently in a consulting role with HKA. So John and I have combined about 70 years of experience, so you can do the math uh, in the government contracts area. Uh, We've worked on over a thousand contract terminations. One of my first ones was the A-12 termination, which I oversaw a lot of few hundred subcontractors on the A-12 uh, as terminating them. But anyway, we've we've worked on a number of contract terminations over the years. All right. Well, good. Now, I mentioned the subject matter is contract terminations and new developments. And really, we're talking about the uh, two termination uh, events, I'll say, was the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan and then the earlier cancellation of the border wall. What kind of issues have arisen for contractors? We work on a number of contract terminations, and and because of that, we see trends from time to time. So as pointed out, the border wall and the political issues related to that, and uh, and there were a number of border wall contracts that were overseen by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and that have, uh, not all of them, but a number of them have been terminated for convenience. And so we're seeing trends related to that and how the Army Corps of Engineers handling those. And then we're also seeing, as, as you know, with the pullout of the U.S. from Afghanistan, there were a number of uh, contractors operating in Afghanistan that have various claim and termination issues. But anyway, we're seeing a number of those contracts being terminated for convenience. And those are both commercial item terminations and kind of FAR 49, more traditional uh, contract terminations. John, do you want to pick up uh, about some of the things you've seen? With my clients, certainly seeing the, the same types of things as Greg just mentioned. Certainly in 2021, we've seen an increase in termination activity, particularly in commercial acquisitions, commonly known as FAR Part 12 contracts. As Craig mentioned, we're seeing a lot of terminations with commercial products and services, suppliers, and, and of course, Afghanistan, border wall contractors, pipeline contractors, and the list is growing. The good news is if you're a contractor that's had a Part 12 or commercial contract terminated, the regulatory requirements that govern the submission and review of a settlement proposal are significantly streamlined, which enhances the opportunity for an expedited and potentially more favorable 
settlement for the contractor. I'll say a little bit about the difference between the FAR Part 12 and FAR Part 15 or 49 terminations. Part 12 is commercial items and then uh, and and so some commercial item contracts have these commercial item terms and conditions, and they have a very streamlined approach to many things, including contract terminations and the recovery to the contractor after the contract is terminated. And then the more traditional FAR 15 contracts, they have in clauses at uh, 52 FAR 52.249-1 through-12 are these uh, termination clauses, and they invoke FAR Part 49, which is termination contracts, and which invokes FAR 31. In the more traditional uh, termination, fixed price contracts are effectively converted to cost reimbursement contract vehicles. Even if cost was not an issue prior to termination for a fixed price contract, for example, cost is very much an issue after the termination. And, uh, And so the contractor accumulates all their costs incurred in accordance with FAR Part 31, and then submits various forms. And I'll just pick up a little bit more on FAR Part 31. There's even a special cost principle at Dash 42, that's 31.205-42, the termination cost principle that is special to contract terminations. As John mentioned, the FAR 31 doesn't really apply to commercial item uh, contracts terminated for convenience. So that's a, that's a huge difference between the more traditional contracts terminated for convenience and the commercial item contracts terminated for convenience. John, I know you've been working on a number of commercial item contracts terminated for convenience for lately. Do you want to comment about the differences between commercial item and, and FAR 49 terminations? One thing to remember is FAR Part 12 commercial item terminations are very different than, than traditional Part 15s. For instance, cost information isn't necessarily required. Audits aren't necessarily required. They're difficult, rather, for government auditors to deal with, however, since they're so used to auditing cost information. And in a Part 12, you're not really subject to audit. But probably the most important thing to remember in a termination for convenience of commercial services or, or products is that the contractors were title, entitled to recover a percentage of the contract price reflecting the percentage of work completed prior to the notice of termination, plus reasonable charges caused by the termination. And the reason I kind of put emphasis on the word charges, it's an important nuance. Under a traditional contract termination, contractors can recover costs incurred as a result of the the termination. These costs must be proven and they're subject to audit. Reasonable charges, on the other hand, are just that. They're reasonable charges that the contractor can demonstrate to the satisfaction of the government using standard record-keeping system that have resulted from the termination. So the contractor is not required to comply with cost accounting standards or FAR Part 31 cost principles for that purpose. Yeah, and I'll pick up there. I agree with everything that John just said, but you think about the government oversight community and some government auditor auditing a termination settlement proposal. They often revert to asking for cost information. And if it's not cost information that complies with FAR Part 31, they find it objectionable. Even though what John just said about the audit not being 
required and cost information not being necessary is true. Uh, that's a confusing point that contractors need to remember when they're dealing with the oversight personnel, because the oversight personnel, they need, I think of a, a round peg in a square hole. They have certain ways of doing things and they, you know, are, they need to verify. And so how do they do that? A different regime, if you will, under the for, for a commercial item termination than it is for the more traditional FAR 49 uh, termination. You concur with what I said there, John? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I, I think a good a, a good term to use is it's a streamlined process. Um, in, in a commercial settlement, the government doesn't have the right to audit the contractor's records that are um, uh, produced solely as a result of the termination. Uh, the final settlement is not limited to the contract value. Uh, that's another important uh, uh, distinction. And there's no proposal certification or any forms required. So it, the, the process is fairly streamlined. But you should remember that streamlining doesn't always mean easy. Contractors faced with a termination, whether a, a traditional government contract or a commercial item contract, should always seek professional advice that'll help maximize recovery of costs and profits to which they're entitled. And remember, the professional fees are recoverable costs under termination settlements. Yeah, that's a good point to remember. Uh, terminations are unique enough. I, I think the regulations are written the way John just said, where professional fees are recoverable. I think they're written that way because ter contract terminations are unique enough to where it, it's not something that you contractors see every day. You know, I know I've been in a number of meetings with contractors where 20 people in the room and we're, they've just got a contract terminated and we're talking about how to deal with it. And uh, There's 20 people in the room. How many of you have worked on a contract termination before? And, you know, one person says I did one 10 years ago. So it's in a circumstance like that where they're just unique enough to where people don't see them every day. That's, I think, why the regulations are written to make professional services costs uh, allowable as, as part of a termination. So, Greg and John, as a contractor, you get, you get notification of a termination for convenience. What's the timeline? What should, what should contractors do to prepare for this to be able to uh, get their claim in? Let's say it's a, it's a traditional. It's, it's one under the, the 52.249 clauses. And so then you need to get together quickly with your team. And sometimes the, the contractor might say, oh, the contract's terminated. I can let the program manager go. I can let all the people that worked on this go do something else. And you should be aware there are a lot of responsibilities after the termination where you need those people that are knowledgeable of the contract. So you, you need some of them at least. And the cost of them working to address the responsibilities after the termination, those are recoverable costs. Don't let them go. But anyway, getting more to Todd's point about the, the timing, it, you need to immediately stop work on the performance of the contract and immediately terminate all your subcontractors. And then you need to begin the process of developing your, your inventory, you, documenting your inventory. There is this form SF-1428 that has to be submitted within 120 days of the effective date of the termination. It's an inventory form listing out all your inventory. It's required even if it's a services contract, even if you have virtually no inventory. The forms are kind of written 
toward an environment where you've got heavy manufacturing. And that doesn't, they were written in the 1950s and they haven't changed much since then. And we think about what the U.S. government did and bought in the 1950s. It was much more hardware and much less services. But, but anyway, the SF-1428 is due within 120 days of the contract termination. And then the termination settlement proposal is due within one year of the effective date of the termination. One thing I'll just point out about cash flow is that a fixed price contractor terminated for convenience can't really invoice for their fees incurred post-termination until they submit this termination settlement proposal. Even though you've got a year, you should really try to do it sooner than that so that you can then begin to invoice for the costs related to the termination. Some of the issues related to getting that termination settlement proposal together relate to subcontractors because you have to terminate all your subcontractors and then kind of oversee the termination process of the subcontractors, meaning subcontractors have to submit to the prime their SF-1428 inventory form. Subcontractors have to submit to the prime their termination settlement proposal. The prime has to evaluate the subcontractor's termination settlement proposal. That includes like audit, fact-finding, evaluation, et cetera. So all that has to be done by the prime contractor and, and included in the prime contractor's termination settlement proposal. So anyway, I said a fair amount there. Uh, John, I'd like your reaction to Todd's question as well. After the notice of termination, I think there's a common list of responsibilities of the contractor, both in the traditional termination and that commercial termination. Obviously, stop work immediately, terminate all your subcontractors, advise the terminating contracting officer of, of any special circumstances precluding work stoppage, right? Uh, performing the continued portion of the contract, if any, in the case of a, a partial termination. Protect and preserve government property. I think Greg mentioned that. Notify the contracting officer of any legal proceedings. Greg talked about termination inventory and settlement with subcontractors. And of course, the, the submission of the termination settlement proposal. I think one important thing to note, though, is the uh, in submission of a termination settlement proposal. There's a couple of bases to submit the proposal. One is a total cost basis, and the other is an inventory basis. And normally on fixed price settlement proposals or for contracts for the provision of, of products, we normally submit a termination settlement proposal on an inventory basis. But if a total cost basis is more appropriate, then by all means, we would, we would use the appropriate form and, and submit it on a total cost basis. But that requires contract termination contracting officers pre-approval. That's important to note. Greg, do we want to talk a little bit about the common items that are re recoverable under a termination settlement proposal? Yes, I think it does make sense to talk a little bit more about the, the termination cost principle and the costs that can be recovered that are kind of unique. There's a, the first sentence of the, the Dash 42, that's 31.205 Dash 42. The first sentence says, and I'm paraphrasing, it says you know, the contract terminations give rise to the unique in, unique circumstances which affect the recovery of costs. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's like you can break your normal accounting rules. In other words, there are things that you would normally say, oh, that's not CAF compliant or that's what you're doing here is not compliant with, with FAR 31 or the cost accounting standards but you're allowed to do it in the case of a termination. So again, don't take my words there too far, 
but there are some unique rules that apply after a termination. And some of these relate to things like initial costs, costs incurred at the beginning of a contract. And and I like to think if you're building Jeeps or some kind of widget, you're building a thousand of them. Well, the first 10 are much more expensive than the last 10. In other words, the first 10, you're setting up your assembly line and your personnel or haven't done these repetitive tasks many times yet, and they're not as efficient. And so if you look at the hours per unit for the first 10, that's much higher than the hours per unit for the last 10. And there's a way to amortize those costs over all of the units so it doesn't look like the contract's in a lost position. If the contract is in a lost position, the, the government is, is supposed to detect that and not pay all of the costs incurred. Uh, if you've incurred a lot of costs and you're not in a lost position, you're supposed to get your costs incurred plus a reasonable profit. And the reasonable profit percentage is determined in accordance with 49.202. There's some requirements there. But if you are in a loss position, the way it's supposed to work is you don't get all of your costs incurred. So you basically, if you were going to incur a 10% loss, had you finished the contract, you incur a 10% loss on your termination costs, which is sometimes a surprise to, to contractors. There's also like loss of useful value provisions, and that's if you acquired a specialized asset for performing the contract, and now because of the termination, that specialized asset is no longer useful to you, is an example. Uh, well, there's a, there are provisions related to the recovery of those costs. There's rental under unexpired leases, special provisions, special provisions related to alterations of leased property. Special provision related to settlement expenses is the defined term, and that's the effort of the contractor to deal with all the responsibilities after the termination. So it includes the SF-1428 and the, the development of the termination settlement proposal. All of those costs are recoverable, as well as outside costs like the work that John and I do, and, and as well as attorneys, as long as they're reasonable in amount. Uh, so all those costs are recoverable. For company people, sometimes the issues relate to just recording their time. If government auditors want to see some type of proof of the, that the hours were incurred, and so if people don't record their time, then that can affect the recoverability, even though they're allowable costs. And I said a mouthful there. Uh, John, what, what did I miss? I don't think you missed anything, Greg, but I'll just add one thing to kind of wrap up that sub, that many costs that the contractor traditionally treats as indirect are treated as a direct cost for purposes of the settlement proposal. For instance, the normally indirect labor of finance and contracts and legal people, inside legal people, incurred to put together the settlement proposal. That's why it's important to establish a, a charge number immediately after a notification of termination so that you can you can collect those costs as Greg mentioned. And they'll be they'll be charged directly to the settlement proposal instead of allocated through an indirect pool. I'll just add a few closing comments and that is if your contract is terminated pretty quickly someone reviewed the contract to see what termination clauses apply. And I've worked on more than one contract that had both the commercial item terms and conditions with a paragraph on, on how to deal with the termination. And the contract also included one of these provisions at 52.249. Usually the terminating letter will say you are terminated in accordance with, and they'll list a clause. 
but have your attorneys look at or think about if more than one clause is included, think about which clause benefits you the most or clauses really applicable, if you will. More and more, I see just contracts including more clauses than are applicable. So, so I would say, you know, look, look at that pretty quickly and then get your team together because if you don't act promptly, you can, there are various issues that can arise if you don't act promptly after the termination. I mean, you have a lot of responsibilities you have to deal with. And so if you don't act quickly, you can later, subcontractors could, if you don't terminate them quickly, for example, they could continue to incur costs. Later, they're asking for recovery of those costs. And there's some issue with regard to the recovery because you didn't terminate them as promptly as you should have, is an example. But the, the overall point is get your team together and, and get started quickly on the termination activities. So, uh, Greg and John, what are the three main takeaways uh, contractors should have related to contract terminations? I'll just start with two. And, and one is immediately upon termination, make sure that you know what cl- contract clause applies to the termination, because sometimes contracts include more than one termination clause. That's one point. And then I would say the second one is is review the contractor responsibilities, because you have significant responsibilities and you need to kind of get your team together and decide how to de- how you're going to deal with your responsibilities uh, after the termination. And John, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I'll add, I'll add the third. I think it's important to um, make sure immediately upon notification or termination to establish a project number or otherwise uh, or other method to to account for your termination expenses. So that you can segregate those and and make sure to claim them appropriately. Well, thank you both for joining me today, uh, Greg or and John or Greg or John. Let me start that over. Thank you both for joining me today, Greg and John. Uh, how would anyone, one of our audience members, wants to get a hold of you? How would they do so? I'll just say my email address is good, and it's Greg Bingham at hka.com. It is my the best way to reach me. John Chesbro, C-H-E-S-B-R-O at HKA.com. Well, thank you again. It's been our pleasure to have you host, uh, be part of this program. And as always, if you have topics you want to cover on a podcast, please send me a note at Todd at FedPubSeminars.com. And until next time, stay safe, keep your distance, and read the talk. Thank you, gentlemen.